The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Welcome to The Good Stuff. I'm Jacob Schick, and I'm joined by my co-host and wife, Ashley Schick. Jake is a third-generation combat Marine, and I'm a Gold Star granddaughter. We work together to serve military, veterans, first responders, frontline healthcare workers, and their families with mental and emotional wellness through traditional and non-traditional therapy at One Tribe Foundation. We believe everyone has a story to tell, not only about the peaks, but also the valleys they've been through to get them to where they are today. Each week, we invite a guest to tell us their story, to share with us the lessons they've learned that shaped who they are and what they're doing to pay it forward and give back. Our mission with this show is to dig deep into our guest's journey so that we can celebrate the hope and inspiration their story has to offer. We're thrilled you're joining us. Again, welcome to The Good Stuff. Today, we're joined by Randy Thompson. Randy is an actor, father, and husband living in Los Angeles, and he's here to tell us the story of how his lifelong dream of scuba diving finally manifested. This episode is a journey of artistic passion, romance, fatherhood, underwater adventure, heartbreaking tragedy, and the power of human connection in the aftermath of great loss. Randy is a student of life who has always been fueled by deep curiosity, and it's an honor to bring you his story. Randy Thompson, thank you so much for joining us here on The Good Stuff. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We're excited. Your story today, it's kind of about the intersection of three life paths, fatherhood, acting, and scuba diving, all of which were important to you at a young age. Tell us about where you grew up and how you first started dreaming of scuba diving. So I grew up in Northeast Ohio in a small town that's directly between Cleveland and Youngstown, but really very rural about 3,000 people total. 
and was raised by my mom, who my dad left when I was about three. And so my mom raised my brother and I until uh, she remarried when I was about 10. And when I was very little, one of my earlier memories is sitting down with my brother on the couch. And he had to be maybe four, which I was probably like five, five or six. And I was like, okay, Ty, let's talk. And he's like, what do we talk about? I said, let's talk about sharks. And I think I just had like a ocean creatures book on my lap and just like landed on that. But it was my kind of opportunity to like be a teacher to my little brother at that age, I think. And I just walked through that book with him and then it never left me. I was just like super obsessed, specifically with whale sharks. That was always kind of my thing is that I wanted to see a whale shark in real life. But just the idea of the size of the oceans, how much we knew and didn't know about it and just kind of all the mystery around it really sparked something in me. I had kind of like a naturally curious mind already and it was just kind of one of these things. Like I wanted to be an explorer. I wanted to go to space. I wanted to dive in the sea. You know, it's like I wanted to see what was out there kind of at the extreme reaches even early on. It was one of those things as a kid. I think that like I'm somebody who's always had a ton of interests and I get very obsessed with things and I have ADHD and so like all of my attention funnels into one pursuit for a bright short time. And then I usually just burn out on it and go on to something else. <laughs> and that, that was one of those things that kind of kept creeping up for me and kept coming back was I'm sure it tied on some level just to like this need to explore and to mine the depths of the mysteries of the world. I got obsessed with space as well. And then there was an image of NASA training their astronauts, I think in Houston, mm -hmm. but training them in a pool with divers. And it just kind of blew my mind. It's like this amazing connection of the two. One of my mentors, I've heard him say several times, which I tell the boys all the time, is like, listen, curiosity is often disguised as courage. So do not ever lose that. That's great. We'll be watching a movie or something, and we'll be five minutes in, and Jackson will ask 1,000 questions. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> bro, we don't know. We just started right. it, too. We've seen the same amount of information you have. But. You're like, there are times when I need you to be just a little less curious. <laughs> just watch the movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that was another passion of yours as well, is that desire to become a father, as we sit here and yeah, talk about parenthood. Yeah, I have this book. It's a book that's like Dr. Seuss characters called My Book About Me. And it's, you know, I am this tall. This is my favorite color. And there's a page that says, when I grow up, I want to be. And it's just two full pages of all of these options, you know, to give kids a like guidepost. You want to be a plumber, you want to be an electrician, whatever it is. And I had just did like a write-in candidate on the blank space, just saying a daddy. I think I was seven years old, my mom said when I wrote that. So when my wife and I found out we were going to have our daughter, I took a picture of that and sent it to my mom just being like, it's happening. Oh, uh, that's yeah, wonderful. It was, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. I think that part of it for me was kind of, not even that I was conscious of this at seven, but I knew that my dad wasn't what I wanted him to be. And that's kind of probably mm. where it ended for me is that I wanted more from him. And now I can kind of look back and see, I was trying to right those wrongs on some level. I had this idea of like, I can be a father and do right by my kids in the way that maybe, you know, I wished that my dad was able to do for me. That's beautiful. We end up on the spinning ball of chaos. And if done correctly, we come to the conclusion of we want to leave this better than we found it. Right. And yeah. I think parenthood is a tremendous way to achieve that goal. 
Jameson is six and a half, and he's already made up his mind that he doesn't want children. And oh, I'm like, I'm, yeah, I'm like, why, little Bubba? And he, because children wake you up early. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, pot, I kettle, mean, it's, black. <laughs> it's airtight logic. I know, Dude, he's got it. It is, and they're so. They haven't had enough life experience to be jaded yet, right? Yes, like they, yeah. And it's such unfiltered, just honesty and curiosity. Yeah. And it's so, so magnetic. It's like, man, I just want to hang out with them like all day, every day. Yeah. Cause and it's, easy. it's easy to see when you or someone else has blunted that a little bit, even in just really small ways, just like moments that I've responded in anger or frustration at something that's a moment when like my daughter comes to me with kind of an open heart and open curiosity. And for whatever reason, either the timing or the way she's expressing or whatever, I respond in frustration and I see just like a fraction of that spark start to flicker. And I think that it's, we're not going to be perfect. We're going to screw it up a million times, but to me, it's a good kind of reminder whenever that happens of just what we're actually dealing with here. You know, we're dealing with a very pure lens to look through the world and we're trying our best to just like do as much as we can to keep it that way or at least encourage it, I think. How did your path lead you from small town Ohio to the big Los Angeles? So I developed a passion for acting and I decided that's what I wanted to pursue with my life. In elementary or middle school, I had seen a production that kind of inspired me and showed me that this was something that could really change people's lives. I mean, it was just being inside of a theater in absolute silence and watching all of these people just riveted and people are crying and I'm just feeling all of these incredibly massive things that I hadn't really expected. It was an eye-opening experience for me and it led me to this idea that I really wanted to pursue acting in, on some level. And so I ended up going to New York. I studied at NYU for four years for my undergraduate and then stayed in New York for about 10 years. And I did pursue acting there. My wife and I ended up getting cast opposite each other in a play. So that's the first time we met was getting cast. And we just became best friends and we were just kind of obsessed with each other for a year, even though we're, I was in a long-term relationship at the time. She was just getting out of a relationship and we were just really intense friends. We wanted to hang out all the time. There was nothing, as far as I could tell, romantic about it until all of a sudden it became very clear to me like, oh, I'm in love with this person. So I was honest with my partner and we ended that relationship and I started this one. And then My wife, about six months after we started dating, got into grad school in California, and she had already been applying before we were ever in our relationship. And so we decided, because I really loved living in New York, we were going to do long distance. She was going to be in California for a couple of years. I'd be in New York. And after about five or six months of that, we were just like, I don't want to do anything other than be where you are. Everything else kind of lost its luster. And I was just like... If this means setting aside other dreams that I have right now, my number one goal is to not, I don't mean to say settle in terms of any kind of negativity towards my ex, but I had taken on certain opinions about the rest of my life that I was just like, it's going to be this at this level and that's going to be fine. And maybe some years down the line, we'll have kids and maybe some years down the line, we'll get a divorce. And that was part of my thinking of my future was just like, this is inevitably what's going to happen because I had become very comfortable in this life that we built. And then I met Beth and I was just like, I can't not be with this person. I can't say to the rest of my life, 
oh, it's going to be fine knowing that this person and this feeling that I have about this person is out there. For me, it was the most important thing to shape our lives in a way that we could be with each other. And so I moved with this expectation that I was going to still be able to pursue acting in L.A. That yeah, is amazing. So, and and what a here. beautiful story. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we talk a lot about these moments of crossroads that you always have in your life where you can look back and see like, oh, I see these sliding doors moments of I took a right instead of a left and there it was. And with her, it was one of the very small handful of moments where you're in the crossroads and realizing that you're there. I could see my life was either going to take a hard left or a hard right but it couldn't stay the same. I can say where we are right now, it's just been the best decision I've ever made in my life. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale, extend your spine, remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Way to go with your gut and follow intuition. And be, yeah. It's like I tell people all the time, everything we want see on the other side of our fear. Knowing that being a father, becoming a father was so important to you, did y'all decide to start a family early or? We talked about it pretty early on in our relationship. I think we both kind of knew deep down this was the person. We had a feeling we would get married. And Beth has said since, she knew almost immediately after we started dating that she wanted to be married to me and that she wanted to have kids with me. And that it wasn't this lifelong dream that she was like, I'm going to have this kind of wedding and I'm going to have this number of kids. But really, that when we met each other, we knew this is the person who I wanted to share this with. This is the person I want to go on that journey with. We were married like two and a half to three years and just decided it was a good time. We were both in a good place with our careers and life. We wanted to at least 
get started in the process. And we didn't have any expectations that we were going to get pregnant right away, but we didn't want to delay it anymore. Just with both of us were kind of getting started a little bit later than a lot of people do. I wouldn't say late in life, even though the medical term is like what geriatric pregnancy is like 32 or something ridiculous like oh, that. Wow. It's, it's so yeah. stupid. It, it just, <laughs> it means nothing, but you know, we were anxious to kind of start the next chapter and it, Took us a long time, took us a total of about two and a half years with about five losses of pregnancy throughout at various stages. So a couple that were really early and then a couple were not really early. And it just, it truly was the hardest thing I think that either of us has ever done. Maybe still, it just, it tested us in such a profound way because For a lot of people, I think, who have gone through miscarriages or pregnancy losses, there's, at least in the early stage for us, we felt very private about it. I know my wife in particular was having a really hard time with just battling the concept of there's something wrong with us or something wrong with me or something wrong with her physically. You know, it's just these kind of little things that are just chipping away at you. and. For our relationship, so much of this became task-oriented or goal-oriented, where we're trying to get to this place, and so we have to do X, Y, and Z, and it's just about checking boxes off and just putting our heads down and going through it. And also, we had moments where it was difficult for either of us to be there for the other person in the way that, that each of us needed. I think both of us maybe were speaking to therapists at the time, but it just... You know, there's moments where you're both just so low and it's like there are times where she's down and I can pick her up and vice versa. And then there were times where we're both just kind of done and just so low about all of it. And at various times we thought, okay, we're done. We're not going to try. We're just not meant to have biological children. And then late in the game, someone else kind of helped us see that every time we got a positive pregnancy test, that is something to celebrate. It is something to be invest in the joy of that moment, even if that means in two weeks, this is going to crush us. Because grieving for a potential loss was never going to help soften that loss. It was always going to be horrible. So why not take this moment now to just be so excited and happy that we made it this far? And so we did that. And luckily, a couple weeks later, she was still pregnant. And then a couple weeks later, we had some tests done and everything looked pretty good. And then it just kind of, you know, the good news kept on stacking. And then all of a sudden, she's nine months and almost a day before she's due. And it's time. And it just was like, looking back on that now, it's just, it feels like it happened to two different people. It's so hard to put myself back in that mindset of when all that was going on. But at the time, and it just was, it was all consuming. It was our whole entire lives. Maybe about a year into it, we started feeling like we could talk to other people about it. And there's this shame of around it that I don't even know where it came from. It's like we came from two incredibly loving, supportive parents who just didn't pressure us at all about having kids. It wasn't like our moms were sitting there being like, when are you going to give me a grandchild? (laughs) It didn't happen. And so it, it just felt like it just was there. And we felt like I don't own enough of a sob story to be able to talk to somebody else about this. You know, I have friends who had from the outside, seemingly so much harder journeys with getting pregnant. And so we always felt very much like there's nothing wrong. It's just taking a long time. Let's just kind of keep it to ourselves. And then over time, we started speaking to more and more people. And it was just shocking 
how many women in our lives, very close family members, very close friends who had gone through this exact same thing or similar things and never talked to us about it. And it's just like, there's just not a mechanism other than a podcast about (laughs) going through (laughs) hard stuff, but there's just not as much of a societal mechanism to talk about hard shit in the same way. And I think that they're especially for something that is very personally traumatic, but from the outside seems like, oh, well, everybody's gone through this. It was so hard for us not to judge ourselves on this theoretical hierarchy of trauma. And then feel the relief (laughs) when you find out there's so many others out there that have been through the same thing. Exactly. We're not on this island alone. And the fact that you guys had the courage to say, hey, we're going to keep going. Yeah. We're going to stay committed. And like you said, it's very routine. You got in a routine. And it's just proof positive, too, that celebrate and be completely present regardless of the past. Totally. That's it. And the fact that you guys were able to get to that point, not to say there weren't hard days. Those are guaranteed, right? Even now. Of course, even now. Yeah. I mean, that's life. Yeah. But it's a beautiful thing, man. It's a beautiful thing that you guys were able, and not to say that you never had an argument or got into it about it, because let's, I mean, you're, you're, (laughs) you know, we know you're not unicorns, but the fact that at the end of the day, you're both still here, present, two beautiful kids. Yeah. I mean, was the risk worth the reward? Yeah, a hundred percent was. And I think that you look at your kids too. And we talk all the time about the concept of traveling back in time. And it's just like, there's nothing that I would redo because I've now met these two kids who are just their only existence is due to every other decision, every other moment that happened before that. And so it just feels like, yeah, of course it was worth it because I would do that a hundred times and a hundred times worse to get to these two kids. It's the... Biggest, most undescribable blessing in the world. So you were able to accomplish that goal, that desire that you'd always had to be a father. So to bring it back to scuba diving, when you got out to California, was this something you also pursued? Like everything else, especially when you're the parent of a a small child, it just (laughs) immediately went into the trash heap of like (laughs) dreams that I have. And I'll just revisit those when I'm retired. For my 40th birthday, my brother-in-law really, he was the inspiration to get the whole family to basically all contribute and get me a first level certification for diving. Because there's a dive shop 15 minutes away from my house and they dive 20 minutes away from my house. And I'm just like, I've been living in California now for almost 10 years and never even just like gave it a second thought of like this thing that I always wanted to do that for several hundred dollars and a weekend, basically, you could just like check that dream off and make it a reality. <laughs> right. like, now I look back, I'm like, what? <laughs> going to be like a 10 year diver. <laughs> so they got me that gift certificate. And it was, of course, in the middle of the pandemic. Finally, I was just like, I need to take the time and just do this. I mean, I just, I need to devote two weekends to myself. You know, we got help with the kids and I just went off and made it a reality. And it was right away, one of the most amazing and difficult things that I had ever done because I was so bad at it and (laughs) just bouncing all over the place. Even in the pool on the first dive, they basically have you put your face in the water and then they have you kneel on the bottom and do these skills that are just basically, you're just kneeling in 
six feet of water in a pool and I'm flopping back and forth. Everyone else in the class is just like stock still. And I'm like looking around at these people just being like, I'm always good at things. Why am I so bad at this? And I, rather than discourage me, I was just like, I'm going to fucking get better at this thing. I'm going to train. I'm going to make this a skill set that I have. And so I kept doing it and kept doing it. And they have a dive club that they meet for just group dives where they'll all go over to Redondo Beach here and go down on these night dives. And I right away, I was just like, that's terrifying. I will never do a night dive. That's horrific. Why would you dive at night in the blackness? And then I was probably diving for like a month and a half. And then I was like, I want to try that night. (laughs) (laughs) And I went and I was super overwhelmed and I'm not a great swimmer, which diving, obvious choice. I like was getting just like battered by the waves and swallowing salt water. And I just was like, on near panic, basically. And I had an instructor who was nearby at the time who basically was shepherding me. And we went down. I couldn't make it work. He basically called the dive. And then afterwards was like, you and me next weekend, just the two of us, we're going to go out. We're going to make this work. And so we went out and it was just watching him everything was calm. Nothing was a problem. Everything was just like, slow it down. You're trying to basically rush through this thing and force your way into being good at it. And what you need to do is take a step back and go slow. And that's all you really need to do. Mm. And literally, I just like making that shift, took a step back, started going slow. It changed everything for me. We had this amazing dive. We saw a ton of octopus, which are like some of my favorite animals, all of these amazing fish. And it's just diving at night for anyone who hasn't done it, I think it can carry an air of just like the black ocean, which is nearly infinite, is out there filled with massive things that want to eat you (laughs) and you can't see any of them. And you're just going to carry this little flashlight around and be like, I'm fine. (laughs) And the first time we did that, that's exactly what it felt like. And then for a lot of people who like to camp or anything like that, if you go for walks in the woods at night and you have this pool of light around you and you just kind of, that's your whole world. If you sit there and obsess about what is 100 feet in that direction, then you're not going to do anything. And so it was just like helping me to kind of be present, be in the moment, focus on this pool of light that is my whole world. And just it it was so magical. I mean, you just see in this exact mm. same site that I trained on that you dive and you see maybe one or two fish and a bunch of sand. It's just teeming. I mean, it is just alive at night. And it was everything I had been looking for. I mean, it just is this like solitude, peacefulness, extreme quiet, and also just things that very few people on this planet get to see on a daily basis, you know? Yeah, let's wrap this up so we can go deaf. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. 
I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Tell us about now that you've finally checked this box of scuba diving and you absolutely love it. Yeah. And you found this piece in it. You had a situation happen that that changed you. Yeah. Like I said, I knew that I wanted to get better at it. I knew I wanted to train more. So I enrolled in the advanced class and I had an amazing instructor, really nice group of people that was, I think there were six of us, six or seven of us. And there was this one guy in the group who was a little bit older than the rest of us. And he drove me crazy. We would like have our first day and then we went out to drinks with the instructor. And it was just like, we would ask him questions about, oh, you dove in Utila. What was that like? And before he could even start talking, this guy, we'll call him Mark, would just jumped in and like, well, I'm thinking of traveling here and what is Japan and like all this stuff. And it was just firing question after question, always about himself, always about stuff that wasn't germane to the whatever we were talking about. And I was just like, I this I can't stand this dude. I need to like so we we got on the boat, we actually separated into two groups. I did my advanced, I was got that certification. I was just like, good, I'm done. I'm just gonna dive now. And then We'd done a couple night dives after that, and there was this one day that I wasn't going to be able to go. Something with the kids, like, was going to delay me. And it was just one of those things that, like, now I look back and, like, all along the way, I was just like, oh, I'm not going to do this. Oh, I'm going to do it. It's just like <laughs> a reason kept creeping up for me not to do it. And then I was just like, fuck it. I really want to dive. I'm going to go do this. Yeah. So I went up and... When I get there, there's a group that's already kind of geared up, like finishing up their process. And then him and this guy, Mark, and the instructor and then of this course. guy who I was just of like, course. you fucking up. Obviously, it had to be you. <laughs> and so, and I walk up to the instructor and say hi. And he was like, well, they're, this other group is getting ready to go out and they're all dive masters and higher. So they're pretty experienced. He's like, if you want to dive with them, you can go with them or you can stick with us. We're just going to kind of do a, a tour with this guy, Mark. And I, in my head, said to myself, you need to be a better person here. You need to open yourself up to the possibility that this guy's not just a dick. Yes, he's annoying, whatever. Maybe learn something about him. Don't immediately just place him into the I'm done with you box. And so I decided to dive with them. So I geared up, we go and we discuss the dive plan. And when people dive there, I would say they stay around like 60 to, to 80 feet of depth. So deep, but not when you're diving, that's not really anything out of the ordinary. 60 is is very common. So we decide to go a little bit deeper because this guy, Mark, had never been that deep. I think he had done a night dive before. Anyway, we're going out and we're all kind of fighting current and breathing a little heavy. And when you're doing that, you're going through your air quicker. And then physics comes into play when you're, the deeper you go, the faster your air is consumed because it gets compressed. And so 
the instructor was checking our air periodically and he, it was basically Mark, then the instructor, and then me at the back. And I felt very comfortable and I was just happy to kind of trail. So we're diving and we got pretty deep. I think we got to around a hundred feet and the instructor turns around and gives me the sign for my air. And I tell him I check and it was on the lower side, but not anywhere kind of in a risk zone. And I see him turn to Mark and ask him what his air level is. And because of the visibility in your lights, I could see that that was happening. I couldn't see a call and response or anything like that. So he turns back to me and immediately signals for a safety stop, which means you ascend to a safe depth, usually 20 to 15 feet, and you hang there for three minutes. And that just allows the nitrogen that your body's on gas to dissipate. Basically, you do that to allow you, all of those gas bubbles to come out of your tissues so they don't get absorbed into your bloodstream and go to your brain or your cause real problems. So I see him ascend, signal that we're ascending to a safety stop. And immediately I know that something's not right because the plan was go out to that depth, turn around, gradually swim up the slope so that as we're going shallower, where that process is happening by right. itself. And sure. it's a much safer way to dive. Ascending at 100 feet is a little bit complicated. You have to be really careful of your buoyancy because as you get shallower, you speed up too. Oh, so you yeah. have to basically compensate for the physics wanting to propel you to the surface. And it's night, so it's in pitch black. You know, you have no visual reference for any of that. So you're just staring at your gauges. And basically, I knew something was up, but I didn't know what. And I see he starts to ascend for a safety stop. I start looking at my gauges and I'm ascending for my safety stop. And I'm going very slowly because I'm terrified. It's so easy when you're a new diver to just blow past that safety stop and you're out of control. I mean, there's just things that can happen to you. You can have an embolism so your lungs would basically explode because you're holding on this gas that's expanding inside your body. Those nitrogen bubbles can get absorbed into your bloodstream and can cause real issues. There's a lot that can go wrong. That is drilled into you from day one about safety stops, maintaining your buoyancy, and not rocketing to the surface. So basically, all that is to say, we're ascending very slowly, and I can see the instructor on my side, and I'm kind of going up and up, and I hit my safety stop, I do my safety stop, and then I go to the surface, and the instructor's on the surface, and he's like, where's Mark? And I said, I don't know, I thought he was with you, and he's just looking around screaming his name. And I look out a little bit out to sea, I would say maybe 100 yards or so, and I can see his dive light, just a green tank marker light floating on the surface. And so we yell, Mark, Mark, Mark. And he immediately yells back, hey. We're like, okay, swim over to us. We're like, oh, thank God. Mm -hmm. I didn't, he was like, what happened? I said, I don't know. You signal for a safety stop. What, he was like, yeah, I checked Mark's air and he was extremely low on air. So we're sitting there talking and I'm looking and, you know, you're bobbing up and down and it's night. So you can't really see anything but the light. Yeah. And I noticed it's staying a decent distance away. And so then we yell at him again, hey, come over here. He's like, okay, got it. And then he's not really moving. And so the instructor says to me, let's swim over to him. Just make sure that everything's okay. So we start swimming. We get over there and he's face up, eyes closed, looking like he's sleeping. And I thought he was just messing with us. So then the instructor, who's also a doctor, immediately recognized that something was up, starts trying to revive him, yelling his name, and then turns to me and says, I'm going to do rescue breaths. I'm going to swim him into the shore. I need you to get to the shore as fast as you can and get help. And so I just take off and start booking it. And I'm not a good, strong swimmer. And I've had very little experience swimming like intensely to try to get help. And so I'm just 
let alone all of, you know, in the adrenaline ocean at night. Right exactly. after you just decompressed. Yeah. 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 So I'm just like, adrenaline is firing. I am just, as everything that I have, I am putting into swimming to shore to get help as quickly as I can. And we're probably a good 200, 250 yards offshore. God. It was a decent distance. And we get maybe, I would say I'm about 50 yards away and I start realizing that if I have a problem as I get out, I am not going to be able to solve that. I'm going to get knocked under and I'm going to drown. Mm -hmm. And so I took a second just to steady myself and just like focus in, slow down and say, okay, here's what I need to do to get out safely. So I start and then I see a light near me and this other group of divers that had gone out just before us, they surface and I yell, Mark's in trouble and here's what's happening and kind of give them a quick, I need you to get to shore to get 911. So one of the divers immediately goes to shore. The other two divers, one of whom is also a doctor, start swimming out to where the instructor is trying to swim Mark in. I get to shore as well, get all my stuff off, start running up to the stairs. I get to my phone I call 911, they're like, we've been alerted, rescue's on the way. And as I come back down the stairs, I can already see the fire department ambulance on the beach coming up, and they're just getting to the shore, dragging him out of the water. And so by the time they got him onto the shore, EMTs were already there, firefighters were already there, they were working on reviving him. And then we stuck around for maybe an hour, had conversations with, with the sheriff's department. They arrived to start an investigation to figure out what happened. And then they leave, the fire department ambulance leaves and they say, hey, we were just to let you know we were able to get a pulse. So we just all immediate relief, just sure. thank God. Obviously, something's hopefully he's gonna be okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the next day, I had a tattoo appointment. <laughs> I, just get, I was getting this massive octopus tattoo to commemorate this milestone that I had achieved, finally getting this advance and really just like marking this time in my life. And I'm driving on the way to the appointment because I decide I'm still going to get it. Obviously, this happened. This was scary. But it's a nice kind of tie-in, too, to remember that. And I got a text on the way saying, hey, I just want you to know Mark passed away. They were never able to get his, him revived. Oh. And I just lost it. I mean, I was in my car. I pulled over and just was just shaking and wasn't even really crying as much as just kind of like all of this adrenaline emotion just dumping. And I decided to go through with this tattoo. And it's, you know, this is like a two-day five hours at a time, big kind of a thing. And it was super therapeutic because I just sat there and thought. But at the yeah. same time, I'm just replaying this event over and over again in my head of every single minute of every moment. Why did I dive with them? Why didn't I do this differently? Why didn't I check his air? You know, all of this stuff. And just beating myself up about it. And then they scheduled a memorial for the next day on the beach, a vigil, basically, to kind of have our whole dive community come together. And his wife was there and I knew she was going to be there and they had kind of given me a heads up saying this is going to happen. And so I was really nervous about even being there, but I wanted to apologize to her. Naturally, bro. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to tell her I was sorry and that answer questions, I guess, if she had any. And someone introduced us and she immediately just like grabbed me and hugged me and mm. was just like, <laughs> the, the first thing she said was, thank you for bringing him back to me. And just, I just wow. lost it. And it was like, it was more than anything that this woman who lost her husband less than 24 hours ago 
was already <laughs> like taking care of me in that way, already able to see some sliver of hope out of this event, some part of it that wasn't horrible. And so we just like cried together and we, you know, all kind of had this little storytelling circle where we talked about him and had dinner and drinks and went home. And, and in the end, you know, after an entire investigation of how it all happened and an autopsy and everything, the answers that we have were that there is nothing that any of us could have done. What we assume happened is that he had a panic event and shot to the surface from 100 feet. Ugh. And as we know, that can wreak havoc on your body. And so, you know, knowing that now, it's still hard not to feel guilty. It's still hard not to be like, I could have checked his air 10 minutes before that and known that he was low and we could have turned around. And yes, all of that's true. But at the same time, we all have to be responsible for ourselves. We all have to be responsible for our own actions. And all I can do is know now moving forward, what are these little tiny steps I could make that can solve small problems so they don't become bigger problems? And so it inspired me to go on to Rescue Diver and now Dive Master and be able to train, be able to render more aid to people, and also just to recommit myself to not allowing kind of a box to be checked and say like, okay, then I'm done. I got it advanced. I'm done. I don't need to train anymore. And even, I don't think I ever really believed that I was a master of this thing. I, I don't, don't feel like I'm a master of anything, but I felt like I'm good enough. It's fine. Let's move on to the next thing. And it really just kind of woke me up of you are engaging in an activity in a non-life-supporting environment. <laughs> so the things that can go wrong go really wrong really fast. And it's just a matter of kind of being aware of those things and taking what steps you can on the way to be better. I want to know, what did you do to take care of your mental state? Yeah, I mean, I come from a, a very, it's not a stoic family, but I'm from the Midwest. Like you just kind of shove your yeah. problems down and smile and be nice to everybody. And you take care of yourself. <laughs> Sounds last. like the South. Sounds yeah, like Texas. You get it. <laughs> yeah. So I knew that something was up. I thought I was managing it pretty well. And then I think my son did something really innocuous that he's done a million times before, like dropping a fork while he was eating or something. And this is at the time he was probably like one and a half, I think. Well, just so you, <laughs> you know, know, at six and a half, it still happens. <laughs> Oh, God, why? <laughs> I just want to leave them with like a bowl of food and be like, you just take care of yourself. Have fun. <laughs> uh, but he did something super innocuous. And I just, I, my level of rage that fueled up shocked me. And I didn't blow up at him. I think I got up and I left the room and went mm. to the kitchen. And parenting can be incredibly frustrating Absolutely. a lot of times. Yeah. But this response that I was having, my heart was racing. I was just angry and ready to just scream at this baby. And I was like, okay, something's up and I need to deal with this. I am clearly responding to this traumatic event and I need to talk to someone. And I've been in therapy before. I have very pro therapy across the board for everyone forever. But thank for God, myself, thank God for that though, right? Yeah. Because it, to me, there wasn't a stigma attached to it. And I was able to very quickly be like, you need help. And the outside voice, the same one that started firing when Nick was saying, do you want to be a guest on this podcast? <laughs> My outside voice was, well, I haven't been through anything. None of this is interesting. There's nothing to talk about really. It was happening then. It's just like, this didn't happen to you. This woman just lost her husband. These kids just lost their father. They're experiencing trauma. 
you had a hard day and saw somebody have a hard time. But I, I was able to step back from that and recognize that that's a liar and <laughs> that yeah. books is not helpful. And I, so I reached out to a bunch of people who specialize in trauma recovery. And so I met with a therapist who's dealt with a lot of people who have been through all kinds of different trauma. We worked through a technique called EMDR. For me, it was a really effective way of kind of processing this event. And also weirdly, when the sheriff's department investigator called me to, to talk through it and basically walk through step-by-step, step, that was so therapeutic to me because I was able to just mm, break it yeah. all down and work through all of it step-by-step. Step. And my stepdad's a, he's a former sheriff's deputy and then a detective. And he was actually at my house. He was in town staying with me when I was on that dive. So oh, wow. I came home and he's the first person I talked yep. to. Oh. And it was one in the morning. I was able to just immediately kind of do this dump with him. And he's seen a lot and was able to kind of help me mm. walk through it in the moment. So talking to the other sheriff's investigator and then talking through with this therapist was game changing for me because I was able to really work through all of the things that happened. I was able to give it its weight to acknowledge yeah. that it had affected me in the way that it had been. And also just clued me into moments of just like, yeah, even when you think that you're fine and you're managing it, my wife knew that I wasn't, my kids right. knew that I wasn't. Like I was a different person than they had seen the day before. And I wasn't throwing things. I wasn't punching holes in walls or anything that you kind of see on TV is like this response, you yeah, know, the, the extreme. response or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The extreme. Right, exactly. And I, you it, know. that's the thing is it's like when you're describing the heart rate and the adrenaline and it's like, yep, that's post-traumatic stress. That's what that is. Right, <laughs> right. You know, I think it's important for people to understand, thank, again, thank God that you didn't have the stigma associated yeah. with that asking for help because, yeah. I mean, there's a reason we've been to a lot of funerals. Right. And that's one of the main ones. Yeah. But being able to have that experience and have that Conviction and knowing, okay, I know that this isn't right and yeah. I need to do something about it because I'm not sure how to crawl out of this. Yeah. The fact that you did it is one commendable and courageous. So, congratulations for that because that's what I tell most people. Hey, yeah. acknowledging it is step one and most oftentimes the hardest step. And then the fact that you were able to get into EMDR, which we're very familiar with. And for our listeners who don't know, that is, it, it's basically a talk therapy that implements an eye movement technique. It's highly effective. The studies on it is it, pretty impressive. Yeah. And it's so rad. The way that you're able to find victory in your vulnerability and refuse to be a hostage to your pride. Yeah. Is so cool. And the fact that you're now a dive master, I think yeah. is so cool. Like yeah. you had every reason in the world to go, you know what? That's that. I've done it, not doing it anymore. I'm out. And you're now a dive master. Bro, that's inspirational. Just straight up. That's the very definition of inspiration. Period. And I, yeah, and I truly, to echo what Jake said, you know, I truly appreciate you having the courage to come on and tell the story. As you stated, and as we've talked about, you know, talking, whether you have the means and the ability to speak to a professional or not, yeah. sometimes just talking just talk things about, out, yeah. just getting them off your chest, it, it really lifts that brick. A hundred percent. Do you still communicate with Mark's wife? 
she's just been unbelievably amazing. And I went to his funeral or they had a memorial service for his friends and family. And a couple of us from the dive community went and it was just, it was amazing. I mean, it was just one person after another getting up and he had all of these interests. I mean, he was like a college professor and he did sports and was interested in woodworking and all this stuff. And you kept hearing people from his life talk about this burning curiosity that he had that drove everything. And a number of people talking about like, you know, it was really irritating sometimes because he just <laughs> wouldn't let something go and wouldn't. And it was just like such an amazing kind of <laughs> eye-opening experience to who this person was, a validation of opening myself and trying to check my own judgmental brain. It was incredibly sad because it was just the loss of the opportunity to really know this person. I may not have without this experience, but his wife was there. And just, again, the second I walked in, I brought, my wife came with me. And the second I walked in, she just gave us both this huge hug. She thanked us again. She just has been so unbelievably generous throughout this experience. And so we've maintained contact. We just met right before um, the holidays to just kind of talk and check in. And it was incredible. And she is very open about the fact that she lost her best friend and that this is not, <laughs> it's not like she she's coming to me and just being like, you know, everything's great. She's really, honest about going through it, but it has been so inspirational to me to be able to see her right away just recognize that this is somebody who pursued something that he loved. And I don't think that anybody who dies following a passion is like, oh, I was really happy to die scuba diving. You know, right, it's just like right. you, the, the he died doing what he loved. It's like, it's always going to suck to die, I think, like, mm -hmm. for most of us. But I just her ability to just kind of look on the other side and say that this is somebody who was, you know, I, I think he was in his 60s and just was still going after things that he was passionate about. And all of these people clearly had loved him and experienced that drive and that curiosity. And that that was incredibly inspirational to me. The human connection, when done properly, oftentimes based on something traumatic, is to me one of the most beautiful things that a human being can experience. And, you know, the fact that you guys still have a relationship and you're able to heal forward together, people don't understand the how invaluable, how rare, and how beautiful that is. Yeah. And I, I want to go back. I think this is a very important point to touch on quickly. When you had that experience with your son... I think it's important for people to understand that post-traumatic stress is nothing more than a normal reaction to an otherwise abnormal situation. You're completely normal. You're not abnormal. Right. Right? And I think that's where people get so caught. Is right. They're like, oh, something's wrong with me. And I'm, I'm broken fundamentally. Right. Yeah. right. No, it is a built-in self-protection mechanism. I just think it's important to point that out because so many people are like, no, 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 I'm just going to Midwest it or I'm going to South it <laughs> or I'm going to, and it's like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do yeah. that because yeah. you all you're doing is adding to the pressure cooker. This is one of my hands down, one of my favorite episodes. I just want to say it while we're live right now. One of the things that I find is just so beautifully ironic is that when we first were talking about your childhood, 
you mentioned that you were ever curious about everything and you would always want to know about this and you would dive into it. And then to come full circle and here you are at this memorial service for this gentleman that at the beginning you weren't too fond of, but then to hear he was exactly like you. I know. And aren't we as humans just masters of putting up these walls or these judgments? Or maybe it was instilled in us as a child from our upbringing, whether it be the South or the North or wherever it might be, but to break those barriers down and to really just see people eye to eye as humans and experience that love. I just, I agree with Jake. I'm just... I'm inspired right now, and, and thank oh. you again for your courage to come and tell this story. Yeah, man. Like, it's been, it's just, I am, we are no shit next time we're there <laughs> making time, and we are friggin' diving together. I And you're d- going to. I'm not going at night, though. I don't care if it's... <laughs> No, I don't. Nice, easy, it's short. Way dive. too hey, creepy, crawly, dark. I, <laughs> I will dive with you anywhere, anytime. Say the word. Amazing. He's got one good leg that can swim sharks. in circles. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I no. There's a lot, a lot of people who are doing with a monofin, just a single yeah, fin, and able yeah, to, yeah. to do that. And then there's scooters and all kinds of stuff underwater too that you can make it easier for yourself. You would look great as a, in a merman. Merman costume. Don't threaten me with a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Randy, thank you so much. Thank you for being on The Good Stuff and thank you for sharing your story with all of us and encouraging and inspiring us today. Thank you. I so appreciate that you guys are doing this and that you're giving space for these type of conversations because like I said, it's just, it's rare. And I feel like even just putting this out into the world in this way is just making a difference. And it's, uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. Listen, didn't really know you before this. Yeah. And I'm like, we like our people collections stock just went up. That's awesome. <laughs> no you. doubt about it. So yeah, thank you, brother. Here. We really appreciate it. And I'm I am super stoked to go dive with you soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. If this episode touched you today, please share it and be part of making someone else's day better. Put on your badass capes and go be great today. And remember, you can't do epic stuff without epic people. Thank you for listening to the good stuff. The Good Stuff is executive produced by Ashley Schick, Jacob Schick, Leah Pictures, and Q-Code Media. Hosted by Ashley Schick and Jacob Schick. Produced by Nick Casolini and Ryan Countshaus. Post-production supervisor, Will Tendy. Music editing by Will Haywood-Smith. Edited by Mike Robinson. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council.